Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roland Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your Dungeon Master, Ryan Howard, and today I am going to do another episode where I review something that was given to me by a fan of the show. Uh, so today I'm talking about a, uh, a new setting, kind of a system agnostic setting. You could use it in pretty much any game, uh, but it seems primarily designed for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, this setting is called Chult. And it was created by Venger Satanis, who I will be having on the show at some point in the future to kind of talk about, you know, the, the idea behind this and, and where he came up with it and, and just talk a little bit about kind of his history in gaming. So he describes it as a gonzo science fantasy post-apocalypse setting that all pretty much holds. It's like Dune meets Cthulhu, but with a lot of other weirdness around it. Uh, because this game setting does not take itself overly seriously. There's a lot of kind of crazy nonsense that happens in here, a lot of pop culture references and stuff like that. This stuff is all kind of out there. And uh, yeah, that's that's one thing that I'm definitely going to emphasize in this in this review of this product is that this is all extremely out there. And if it's something you're into, then I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, before we dive in, though, I, I do want to kind of continue what I was talking about last week as far as uh, Dungeon Master stories, uh, because pretty much immediately after the last episode went up, I uh, had my Saturday game, and I had an instance where, you know, as opposed to last week's episode where it was a Ryan did a good Dungeon Master thing, this was a Ryan did a bad Dungeon Master thing. Ryan actually did uh, multiple bad Dungeon Master things in the course of a single session, because my Saturday group, uh, they were they were transitioning from one arc to the next, and uh, this transition kind of happened in a really sloppy way, and that's on me because I didn't plan it out well. Basically, they had spent the past few sessions doing kind of like a pirate adventure, and they were now going back to the mainland to kind of continue the main story, uh, but the idea was that they would now have to go off to a different part of the world to advance the main story. But I essentially just kind of shanghaied them into it. I probably should have given them some time in kind of the main hub city to, like, decompress, go shopping, do all that kind of stuff. But I pretty much had, like, the main NPC that's that's kind of been around them the whole time show up and say, Hey, we had this uh, delegation that was supposed to be here. We're waiting on them. They haven't showed up. And we received this threatening message, which was basically one of their fingers cut off in an envelope. 
that had a uh, a symbol on it uh, that basically belonged to this uh, this group of raiders that has been terrorizing kind of the western part of the continent. And so the players ended up going immediately to an airfield because I told them the the fastest way to get there would be by airship. And uh, just so you guys know, this is not like a Dark Sun game or anything like that. This game is your typical like high fantasy D and D in kind of a kind of a world that I I made up slash borrowed from other stuff that's happened. Like the the primary NPC is my first character Cromwell, uh, because I've decided that I cannot run a game without Cromwell being around somewhere. My Dark Sun players will eventually run into him. I have not decided what form he is going to take, but he'll be there. So they go to this airfield, and I wanted to get a uh, combat encounter in before the session ended. So I kind of threw together this combat encounter where they were attacked by some martial arts adepts and archers, uh, which are both in Volo's Guide. I threw that together, and they are a level 7 party, I believe. Yes, yeah, they are, they are level 7, and there's three of them. I believe I threw five CR3 creatures at them, which I think is right around kind of a deadly encounter. But I've kind of stopped paying attention to what is and isn't like a, a hard or deadly encounter for them because I purposefully made them super overpowered. That tends to be a thing in a lot of my games. I either purposefully or unintentionally overpower my characters for the level they're at and then end up throwing bigger things at them than they typically would handle at their level just because of how powerful they are. This happens to my Dark Sun players on a routine basis, and that was pretty much what I told them from the get-go is, yes, you have higher stats than normal. We started with a 99-point point buy. You have higher stats than normal for third-level characters, now fourth-level, but I'm going to be throwing bigger things at you because you can hit harder. However, their hit points are still third-level hit points. Uh, so there's there's a balance to be had there. Their AC is higher, but their hit points are third level. And similar things kind of happened with my uh, my Saturday group that that my wife is in uh, because I gave them all super powerful, super rare magic items recently. Uh, like there's a, a monk, and this is a seventh level monk that I straight up just gave the Staff of Thunder and Lightning to because there's nothing good for monks. Unfortunately, that's like the best thing you can give to a monk. That's something you should probably give them at like 10th to 15th level. I don't know how long the game's going to go. I don't foresee them getting to 20th level. So I decided I was just going to give them super powerful weapons. The same thing, like I gave my wife basically these modular magical scimitars where she can slot different gems into the hilt of a weapon. And I totally stole this from Muhammad, my First DM. He introduced this in in his game. Only it was uh, it was armor that that did this. Uh, but he, you know, basically you can slot different gems into the hilts of the scimitars, and they will do additional damage. And so at any point, she can have like a frost brand or a flame tongue or a lightning or poison or necrotic equivalent of those. And she's got gems for for each of those. Uh, but it's an action to slot a new gem. So basically, if she wants to switch up in combat, she'd have to spend an action to switch up. And then I gave a belt of stone giant strength to my dwarven bard. And he also now has, and I stole this from, I stole this from Tim, who I think got this from Xanathar's Guide. I think this weapon is in Xanathar's Guide, but I don't remember. I basically gave him a singing axe, 
The singing axe is named Madrigal, and it does additional thunder damage as well as singing. So it's a little bit different from what, what Faye has in Knights and Nerds. And so they these guys deal a lot of damage, uh, but they still have 7th level hit points, and they don't really have an actual tank because it's a rogue, a monk, and a bard. The bard is a valor bard, and because he's a valor bard, and because he's got that belt of stone giant strength, he's basically the de facto tank. Which, if a bard is your de facto tank, you might want to reconsider your party composition. But, when we started, they had a cleric. That's all gone away. I've, I've thought about giving them an NPC to tank for them, essentially, but with these super powerful weapons, they basically are doing fine. Anyway, I throw this encounter at them, which was maybe a little too high, and, and maybe I should have thought about this before we actually got to the table, because I threw this together at the table. But I throw this thing at them, and basically, for those of you who aren't familiar with the martial arts adepts in Xanathar's Guide, uh, they can basically do monk stuff. It's not key points, but they, they basically have abilities that are similar to what monks can do with their key points, uh, where if they hit, they can uh, stun you or knock you prone or knock something out of your hand. They hit a lot. I was rolling very well. So I had a lot of stunned players, and there were three martial arts adepts on them, and then there were two archers off in the distance where they couldn't, like, get in melee range. So basically, a monk would stun them, and then the archers would take two shots each, and because they had advantage, they would hit. And they were dealing, like, d8 damage and stuff like that, so... Yeah, at some point, the monk dropped. The monk dropped, I think, twice. And then my wife's rogue character, I thought, dropped... And then I thought uh, the bard had dropped as well. They were knocked prone, but they made the way they were talking, I thought I had actually dropped them. And so I thought I had a TPK on my hands, or I was about to have a TPK on my hands. And I did kind of the, the cardinal sin of dungeon mastering. And I've done this before. I did it once my very first session of DMing. And I did it again the first session of Dark Sun because I kind of overestimated the encounter. I essentially took something off the board and said, okay, retcon that wasn't there. And honestly, I don't think that's a good thing to do as a dungeon master, and it's something that I'm going to stop doing in the future. If you overestimate an encounter, you should let the players basically be knocked down by that encounter. If you don't want to kill them or you don't think it's thematically appropriate to kill them, then bring something in. Have them be captured. Which that, that kind of was what I had in my mind, because when I started to take the two archers away, uh, the players at the table said, no, no, leave them there. We can still win this. We, we're still in this fight. We can still do it. And I said, are you sure? I thought all of you were down. And they were like, no, no, no. I still have a few hit points. I can still do this. I can still do that. So I said, all right. All right, I'll leave those there, and then the goal of this is not to kill you. They are, they're not trying to kill you. Otherwise, they would have attacked you while you were down, and you'd be dead. But basically, they stopped me from taking these pieces off the table, taking these, these two archers off the table, and then they actually won. They reversed the outcome of the battle. They, they turned around and they won. So all of that to say, if your players are not doing well in an encounter... Don't take stuff off the table. Let it play out. And if your players overcome the obstacle, if, you know, say the dice kind of turn against you as a dungeon master and turn in their favor, or their dice turn and they, they start hitting more, they start critting, or they figure out some kind of smart way to take down what you've thrown at them, and they're able to win, then they've overcome something that you thought was insurmountable enough to, to 
you know, say, okay, we have to, we have to undo parts of this because I threw too much at you. And at that point, you know, basically what, what you're saying when you're doing that is you're, you're not putting faith in the players that they will overcome this obstacle that you've put in their way, or you're not putting faith in yourself that you can kind of overcome this mistake that you've made and make it into something fun for the players. Because I thought, and this is something that I'm, I'm kind of trying to unlearn as a dungeon master, I've always thought that players don't want to be killed. Players don't want to die. They don't want to lose their characters. Because when I played, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to lose my character because I liked Cromwell. And so I would do stuff to, to prevent Cromwell from dying. Now, I didn't, like, not take chances or stuff like that, but I, I was very careful with how I did things. If I was going, like, if I was low on hit points, I would take an action to cure wounds myself, because, you know, rangers had cure wounds, or to, to drink a healing potion, or to get away from, from where I was and kind of regroup. Or if I could, you know, kill the thing that was on me, you know, kill it, do everything that I could to kill it. But not all players kind of have that in their mind. Some players are very reckless with how they play the game. Some players are like, I'm gonna do this, and if I die, I die. And some players, like, uh, you know, I, I heard <clears throat> I heard Matt Jowett talk about this on an episode of uh, The Wisdom Check, which I'm gonna be having uh, one of those guys on the podcast sometime soon. There's, there's a player in one of his games, uh, or at least there was at the time of the interview, that wanted to be killed on stream and kept saying, I want you to kill me. I want you to kill this character. You know, I, I want to end up in a situation where I die, because sometimes Sometimes losing a character is a lot of fun and really cool in, in a certain way. And I remember back to the time where Austin was playing BT and Austin lost a fight to essentially his nemesis, this, this character that, you know, he'd been antagonizing this entire time who wanted, you know, to take revenge on Austin, this this vampire lord, he lost the fight to him. And Muhammad said, you know, I will, I'll have him teleport you back and say, now that I've defeated him, I can come back on this plane because, you know, he banished him. And I think I've told this story before, but Austin had used uh, divine intervention to forever banish this vampire lord from the plane and just uh, say, all right, you can never come back here. What happened was we were, you know, fighting this cabal of bad guys like we were doing in Muhammad's campaign. <coughs> and BT was transported to the plane where the vampire was. And the vampire essentially made a wager with him saying, you know, if I defeat you, I get to come back. And BT said, okay, that works. That works for me. And so they fought, and BT was doing very well, and he came very close to killing that vampire, but the vampire beat him. And what Austin decided was that it didn't make sense for the vampire to spare his life when he defeated him. So he said to Mo, go ahead and kill BT. Go ahead and kill this character. And this was a character that was beloved at the table. We all loved BT. And Austin was having a lot of fun with BT. But he said, go ahead and kill BT because it makes sense for him to die here. And so rather than, than be upset that he was defeated by something, Austin accepted that defeat and embraced it. And it really was a, a great turning point in the campaign campaign for a lot of our characters, especially my character, because my character had a, a 
kind of developed a bond with BT over the the recent sessions that that had happened because of other things that were happening in in Cromwell's backstory. So all of that to say, if you end up in a situation where it looks like your players are going to die, let it keep going. And if you are going to TPK your party, TPK your party. If that's kind of like, if, if that's what the situation demands, TPK your party, apologize later if they're upset, and then... Um, you know, just, you know, create new characters. If it doesn't make sense to TPK your party, or, you know, if there's something coming up that you want the party to be around for, at that point, uh, come up with something. Say, all right, uh, they're not killing you, they're here to capture you. And then the next session, they're back in an enemy camp or a prison. I'm actually thinking about writing an adventure that's set in a prison that's designed for, you know, if you TPK your party but don't want to kill them, you take them to this enemy prison. And it's an adventure designed around players kind of not having their gear, not being fully armed or armored, and they essentially have to survive in the prison and find a way out. Kind of like, there's this Green Arrow movie that was supposed to be made like 12 years ago called Green Arrow Escape from Supermax. Never got made. I've read the script though, because that's the kind of stuff that I do. And it was all about Green Arrow being wrongfully imprisoned in the Supermax with a bunch of supervillains and having to find a way out. And honestly, like, stuff like that is really cool. Like, I really liked the idea of Suicide Squad because I thought that that movie, like, would largely be set in Bell Rev prison. I wish they would do a Suicide Squad movie that was kind of like the first half of the movie is set in Bell Rev and the team has to come together and kind of survive the prison and see what, like, day-to-day life is inside the prison. I really like the show Oz, because I feel like it does kind of that that stuff well, sometimes too well. That show's very disturbing if you haven't seen it, Um, but if you can get past some of that stuff, I I highly recommend that show. And I also really like, like, the prison levels in, in Mafia 2 are some of the best parts of the game. I like stuff like that. And there was a really fun session with my players in in my first campaign where I intended for them to get captured and they were in this prison and, you know, they were doing prison stuff. And the way that they escaped was they started throwing their their shit buckets at guards and they essentially started like a shit fight. And that's like they, they started a riot in the prison that, that revolved around guards and or inmates throwing poop at guards. And it was hilarious. And then, you know, from there on, their characters and other characters that they encountered would reference the shit storm that occurred at a, a prison. And they had a lot of fun with that. So, you know, doing something like that is it's a fun change of pace for what the typical D&D adventure is. And, um, you know, it can lead to some cool stuff. And it's a good way to like introduce a new character if uh, you've got someone coming in or introduce new NPCs, stuff like that. Like I introduced, I think I introduced a new NPC in that prison session that I, or those prison sessions that I did with the players. Yeah. And in fact, that's where, uh, that's where Elias came from. And Elias, uh, for those of you who have never heard me talk about him, Elias it's basically a ripoff of a character who I believe was named Elias in The Wheel of Time. I'm very creative, if you can't tell. But it's basically, uh, so Elias was like a minotaur, you know, big, strong, but he was also super intelligent. And so he was kind of like a beast type character. 
And the, this was a character that was in the Wheel of Time. I, I don't remember the exact race from Wheel of Time, but he was basically a minotaur. But he was super smart and he wore like fancy clothes and stuff like that. And so I had this character show up in my game and I very slightly changed his name and and did other things with him. But let me actually look up that character because I don't I don't remember. Um, I actually don't remember if that character there there is a character named Elias in that book. I'm pretty sure or in those books. I think he might be the wolf guy though. And I don't remember what book he shows up in. Oh, Loyal. That's his name. And he's an ogier. Okay, so I didn't I didn't rip off his name. That's his deal. He's uh but yeah, that's it's basically the same thing. It's he's basically beast. But yeah, I, I basically took Loyal from the Wheel of Time and uh stuck him in my in my campaign. And one of these days I would love to play as that character as Elias. I'd have to I'd have to figure him out a little bit. Maybe do him as like a wizard, but take a dip into barbarian or something like that. I I don't know. I, it's something to think about. Definitely something to think about. But yeah, all of that to say, if you think you're going to kill your characters, just kill them. Don't don't try to retcon anything. Don't take things off the board. Just go forward with what was about to happen. Just do it. Just let it happen because who knows, your players might turn things around. My players in the Dark Sun campaign actually did way better against the Nightmare Beast than I thought they would. I thought all of them would go down. Now, maybe I went easy on them, but I thought all of them would go down at some point. And the reason I didn't go until all of them went down is because, you know, that, that would take a long time. And some of them hadn't been hit at all because they were kind of staying at the back, and this thing is very much uh, melee-focused, but with some spell casting. But yeah, most of them went down, but some of them didn't. But anyway, just, like I said, just just let it happen. If your players drop and you don't want to kill them, come up with something. Come up with a, a session where they've been captured and they have to use their wits to escape or something like that. You know, at that point, you can, if there's like a, a pesky magic item that's making your life miserable, if they get dropped by something... It's gone. Have it get stolen. And if it's thematically appropriate for one or more of the characters to die, then kill them. Don't be afraid to do that. And so moving forward, I'm going to stop taking things off of the table. I'm going to stop doing that. It's a bad habit to get into. If you're just now uh, wanting to DM, don't do that. So yeah, that's that's kind of my story slash rant for the day. So with that out of the way, let's jump into this uh, this review of Chult by Vinger Satanis, and talk a little bit about this uh, this product. As I said at the top of the episode, Chult is a setting slash uh, series of dungeons put out by Vinger Satanis. Uh, you can find it on DriveThruRPG. Uh, Vinger actually reached out to me on Twitter and sent me a copy of this to review, and I was going to review it uh, the week of New Year's, but as you heard, I had a sinus infection and was in no shape to be putting out episodes. And Wenger also uh, very recently did a Kickstarter for, I believe, a uh, an actual adventure set in this world. And so Chult, uh, starting with the front cover, uh, you kind of immediately know what you're in for. It, there's lots of Lovecraftian imagery, and there's this giant black pyramid surrounded by eyes and tentacles. It's a lot of weirdness, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much kind of tone setting for the the rest of the book. And that cover art was done by Monstark. And then there's other stuff uh, done in this book uh, by Monstark, uh, Yannick Bouchard, uh, Brent Schreiber, Dan Brown, Paul Carrick, Luke Oram, Matthew Bailey, and Slappy. And then there's also some Adobe stock images in there. We will 
get to that at some point. And the general layout of this book is there's an overview that describes what the setting of Chult is like. It gives history, uh, factions creatures that you find there, uh, magic items, races, stuff like that. Different, uh, there's, there's actual, actually different mechanics that, uh, Vinger introduces in this book. Uh, so we'll get to that kind of when, once we get to it. And then there's, uh, two regular dungeons, which one is called Beneath Kradumek. Uh, one is Inside the Frozen Violet Demon Worm, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Then there is the Gamma Incel Cantina, which is basically a place to find a plot hook, uh, but there's lots of cool details in there. And then there's the Black Pyramid Mega Dungeon. And then from there, there's an appendix, an index, and then some stuff about kind of the, the Kickstarter backers who helped make this book possible. So yeah, let's go ahead and dig into that. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, a word about the art. It is, for the most part, really, really cool. There's lots of cool images here. Um, I think my favorite stuff is the stuff... Um, I believe all of the stuff that I really, really like is done by Monstark. He's got this really cool, um, like, old-school vibe to it. A, a lot of the stuff that he did is very Dune. There's lots of, like, really cool images of, you know, demon worms with their maws open and people in robes running through the desert and stuff like that. And given that a lot of my gaming these days is done in, like, Dark Sun, and I've, you know, been very hyped for the new Dune movie, and, <coughs> you know, I really, I really like that world. Um, a lot of that stuff really appeals to me. And then following kind of that, that first image from Monstark, there's a really cool map, like a, a really, really nice map of just kind of the, the overall world of Chult and the different things that, that exist kind of in that world, the different places to go. And then <clears throat> we immediately go into, um, the history, the history of Chult. And, uh, basically it starts in what Wenger calls the Age of Legend, which is your typical medieval D&D setting. And then, um, in, in kind of the Age of Legend, this world was ruled by the old ones, these old kind of Lovecraftian gods, and they corrupted Chult. But the old ones basically kind of burned themselves out and fell asleep exalted, and then when they fell asleep, uh, it ushered in the tech age where things went from your typical D&D setting to almost like a cyberpunk type setting. And basically kind of the malevolent creatures went, went underground and kind of died off and then people became... <clears throat> People kind of moved into, like, a cyberpunk world, and uh, they kind of lost their understanding of magic and, and became, you know, technologically advanced and stuff like that. Uh, but then at some point, kind of the old ones came back, and they, they woke up from their slumber, and uh, people started to, like, rediscover sorcery and, you know, had conversations with demons and old ones, and then the old ones awakened realized that uh, the mortal beings that dwelled on the surface had forgotten about them. And basically, they decided that, you know, they, they'd lost some of their power because people no longer believed in them. And they decided that they were just going to wreck shop. And so they just started destroying all of these cities that were in domes and stuff like that and started this kind of war. And um, this war basically created this apocalyptic landscape where the world was ecologically devastated and, you know, people were nuking the old ones. And essentially humanity barely won against the old ones. And all but a very few of them were killed and their, their corpses are in the sand and their blood turned into this, like, yellow-green 
ooze that flowed throughout the entirety of Chult, and it's basically like magical slime that kind of gives everything um, magic again. And so we end up in this, uh, we end up in what, what Wenger calls the Obsidian Age, where there's some technology left from the old days in, in isolated pockets, and so you can run into like laser rifles and, and robots and stuff like that. But a lot of the world is kind of like Athos in Dark Sun, where everything's just like trying to kill you. And then there's this, uh, this black pyramid that sits kind of in the desert. That's this mysterious place that's been recharged by this, uh, this, this chartreuse ichor that I believe is called Zoth. And it's a, it's a major resource. And there are, there are people from other planets that show up to like mine the Zoth. It's called Zoth fracking. And then there's new gods that came in to replace the old one. And so there's, it's this weird balance of, of sorcery and technology. It's, it's essentially like space fantasy, which is really cool. Like science fantasy is something that kind of went away after, you know, Dune and Star Wars and stuff like that. Star Wars is really the only place where you can find like science fantasy anymore. A lot of old school science fantasy is kind of passe. I'd really love to bring it back. If there's one thing that I could do in my lifetime, it's bring back science fantasy. <clears throat> and so initially, this kind of really appealed to me because, you know, I like all that stuff. And so from here, um, Wenger kind of describes, you know, what the world is like. It's mostly this harsh desert that wants to kill you. And if you're trekking across the desert, you know, and you're wearing metal armor, there's a good chance that you're going to keel over from exhaustion. There's radiation. So if you don't, like, take radiation pills, you'll get radiation poisoning and, and mutate possibly. And then there's a couple different, um, there's a couple different places that exist as like bastions of civilization. And there's one page here. Um, so I want to kind of get into kind of my aesthetic problems with this book, because for the most part, I think this book looks really cool, but I've got one major aesthetic problem with it. And that is that there's a mix of real photos and drawings. And my thoughts on this are, if you want to build your book around like here, this is a real these are real images. These are models wearing costumes, that kind of stuff. Cool. If you want to build your book around renderings, drawings, also cool. I don't like mixing the two. It it gives me kind of a weird a weird vibe, a weird clash of of styles. And then there's one book here, there's one image here of a desert and it's it's I believe it's a stock photo. I don't think this is a drawing. It looks like a stock photo. And it's a stock photo of just an empty desert, which bothers me because it makes it look like a science textbook on this page. Like it looks like a middle school science textbook. Just just this one page. And that's that's not cool. That's not like that's not a vibe you want in your RPG book. You don't want people to open the page and be like is this a like Pearson science book? What the hell? So yeah, that's one problem I have. If you're making an RPG book, either do all all drawn artwork or all painted artwork or all photos. I don't like the two mixing. Just if you're trying to appeal to me. Other people might not have a problem with that, but that's that's my take. But now one thing I, I do want to say about this book is there's a lot of cool tables in here. Um, this one that we come to is a, uh, there's a mutation table. Uh, there's a cyber augmentation table. Uh, there's a There's a really cool critical failure table that that I'll get to when we get to that page uh but but fingers put a lot of cool tables in here and a lot of a lot of cool stuff uh that can happen a lot kind of that relies on you rolling dice uh just to see what 
what happens. And so uh, let's get into kind of the main uh, civilizations that you'll find on Chult. So the first one is uh, Kratomek, which is like an obsidian glass steel city, which is a cool image. Uh, but the, the main hook of the city is it's entirely controlled by a uh, purple demon worm, also named Kratumek. And everyone that's in the city is, like, mind-controlled by this, this worm. And if the players show up there, except for a certain event, which we'll get to later, if the players show up there, they'll start to feel the influence of the demon worm, and they'll have to make saves or be mind-controlled. <clears throat> and they're basically... The city is basically controlled by this demon worm and then these priests that, that basically ensure that the demon worm gets his way. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole city has a good amount of technology. They've salvaged a lot of the old world stuff. And, um, yeah, the, the purple priests, the priests of the demon worm basically control this thing. And then there's a dungeon beneath the city where the priests dwell. And it uses its own currency called the Talon, which is like a triangular coin. It's a little bit less than what gold is worth. And then the next place you get to is Jalet, which is uh, a kingdom that's ruled by a matriarchy, uh, to the point where they've declared masculinity is inherently evil and most men who are not used in breeding are castrated. Uh, so the majority of the male population is eunuchs. Basically, this is kind of like uh, Menzo Baranzin. Uh, but they take it a step further, and, uh, you know, there's there's a couple males that, you know, try to escape every day and stuff like that. Basically, you don't want to go there. It, it sounds like a nightmare for me, because I'm a guy. That doesn't sound fun. But yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. That's one of the places where you can go. And, uh, yeah, that's, um, I don't want to get too much into that, because I don't want to upset anyone. But yeah, that I could see that going multiple different ways, depending on who's running the book. So, yeah, just, just make sure that everyone at your table is cool with, with whatever you're doing, because you, you might upset people uh, if you, if you kind of go down that, uh, that path. That's something that I like to kind of not put in my books, or not, not put in my, uh, my adventures. Uh, just, just, it's a touchy subject, getting into, you know, kind of the, the, the pros and the cons of feminism and different, uh, dif different ways that that... that ideology can um present itself and stuff like that that's that's a loaded subject that's something that can cause a lot of fights amongst different people and different groups i've got opinions on it i'm sure you have opinions on it that's not what we're here for but this is in this book if you know that's something you want to avoid then you just pretend that city doesn't exist if that's something you want to deal with you can have people go to that city but yeah, that's uh, that's something that you can. That's that's in the book. That's the city of uh, Jalet. There aren't any adventures set there, as far as I know. I don't know what the new adventure is like. So yeah, there's that. And then there is the main city, which is called Agriba. Um, and and here's where we kind of get into something that Wenger does in this book that I'm not a fan of, which is where he takes uh, familiar names from pop culture and puts. Lovecraftian apostrophes in them to make them kind of different. Um, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, this is like a brightly colored city. Uh, it's ruled by a uh, benevolent dictator, a benevolent king, um, who may or may not be as benevolent as he seems. Uh, he, he does have, like, complete control of the city, and there are rumors that he's very cruel to his servants. 
But this is kind of like the main hub of commerce and industry. This is this is your your main city, probably where you'd want to start your adventure. Definitely where you could get like cool stuff. Uh, there's there are priests who uh, they call themselves demonologists, and they have to make a humanoid sacrifice once a month just to to keep the demons from destroying the city so there's that and then it's it's the best place to get transportation across the desert if you don't want to walk it and then there's the domed city which is kind of the last vestiges of the uh the age of technology and this city is very tightly controlled um there's a ton of space in it but they only house 5,000 humanoids um coming into the city like to live is very highly restricted uh but it's basically climate controlled to be perfectly warm it's um uh, he describes it as a self-sufficient urban environment relying on science and technology to purify water and machines to keep the thermostat at 72 degrees. And there's lots of tech smugglers and, and kind of squatters that will try to break into the city, and that's their main crime. But uh, the main thing that this place has is this is where you get your cyber augmentations. For those of you who love cyberpunk and want to run around with your robot arms and stuff like that. And here's another table of, uh, of cyberware that you can get uh, with different benefits that you get uh like there's a hydraulic arm that adds plus one to damage or optical enhancements that let you you know plus one for ranged attacks there's a laser eye that lets you do 3d6 damage once per hour cybernetic spine gives you uh one additional hp per level uh you can get a chrome cranium which gives you plus one to ac and these are all like varyingly expensive like the the cybernetic spine is the most expensive at 400 gold pieces but these are, like, these are things that could, uh, your players could get to kind of help them survive this world. Uh, another cool art piece here of, like, a, a sandworm. Looks like it's trying to eat a spaceship, which is cool. And then, uh, the next place is the, uh, the Great Sunken Library, which is the repository of all-known knowledge on Chult, or at least it was until, uh, the Apocalypse. And, uh, there are, uh, five scholars that kind of protect this library. Uh, then there is the Crimson Rock of Sacrifice, which is this, like, bleeding rock where it's said that if you go there, you basically have to shed blood. And there's different uh, things that happen there. A lot of tribes kind of war over who controls the rock. And then kind of in the middle of the desert, there's this uh, <clears throat> Moss Eisley-type cantina called the Gamma Incel Cantina. And it's like a watering hole for the, the uh, Zoth frackers that show up. And uh, all the different people in the <clears throat> in the desert. It's a really cool place. I really like that map and all the descriptions of the people who are there. And there's a lot of it. it it's kind of a combination of like uh, the bar from from Dusk Till Dawn and uh, Moss Eisley, and you know all those all those great kind of bars that you see in uh, in media. Then there's the Chartreuse Sea, which is this giant sea of pure Zoth, and uh, <clears throat> that's the uh, it's kind of the repository of the Zoth everywhere. This Zoth is kind of uh, not as potent as the real stuff because <coughs> it's been sitting out in the open air. Uh, but there are like Zoth pirates who try to salvage stuff from there. And then kind of the last vestige of civilization before you get to the Black Pyramid is Vega Corso, which is a city that's run by, uh, or rather a town that's run entirely by... Uh, one gang, which is the Diablo Mata. And essentially they run everything, they take a cut of everything. And then there is Ascendus, 
which is an outpost and a faction that has kind of uh, modeled itself after the age of technology or the tech age. <clears throat> and they have kind of done their best to build up the tech. And so this is like a high tech faction. They've got all the the power armor and laser rifles and battle droids and stuff like that. And basically, you just don't mess with them. They are, they're badasses. And then from there, you've got some factions that you kind of see around. There's a whole bunch of them. There's one that's straight up called the Dharma Initiative, but spelled D-H-A apostrophe A-R-M-A. And they basically do the same thing that the Dharma Initiative and Lost does, which I appreciate the pop culture reference. And I understand what, what Wenger is doing there. And I understand that this isn't necessarily meant to be taken seriously. It's just a bit of fun. But stuff like that I find really jarring. Like, if in one of these cities I had an NPC who wore a cape and a cowl run around named Bahat Man, I think my players would get super upset or would just groan. But yeah, stuff like that, I, I generally like to avoid stuff like that. If I were running this, I'd rename that faction. But that's just me. And again, not trying to take anything away from what Wenger's doing here. But yeah, stuff like that just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. It doesn't bother me a ton, it's just, it's, it's, it makes me groan a little bit, and it's something that I try to avoid. If I'm gonna rip something off, I'm gonna name it something different, as you guys heard from my, my rant earlier. Then we get into some, some of the, uh, the adversarial creatures that you find in this world. There's a lot of cool stuff. There's another cool art piece, it shows, like, two monsters fighting and a guy with a laser rifle hiding. There's a lot of drawings of people in jeans and leather jackets, which is not really how I envision this world, but if that's what Vinger put in the book, that's what he put in the book. I can uh, I can get over that. I picture everyone in like vaguely medieval stuff with a bunch of like lazy. I picture Star Wars, is is kind of what I picture, like Star Wars but grungier. And then there's a list of magic items uh, that are specific to this world, and there there's lots of cool stuff in here. There's like you know blasters, hoverboards, different gems that do stuff, uh, obsidian weapons. A lot, lot of cool stuff here. A lot of cool, interesting stuff. And then there are some exotic races. My only beef here is all of the exotic races that are listed are different variations of elf, just with different color skin and different abilities. So I'd appreciate a little bit more variety, but I understand, you know, cool stuff that he was doing. And maybe if he just didn't name all of them elf, because they're all infernal elf, moon elf, blood elf, sky elf, midnight elf, sun elf. That's, that's the names. And then there's a name table and some stuff about, like, calculating <clears throat> advantage and disadvantage and saving throws. And a lot of that kind of depends on um, what system you're using, what you're going to use. Like, I'd run this in 5th edition because it's very compatible. But that, that stuff is there. And then we get into the critical failure table, which I think is cool. And this is something I might actually port into uh, one of my settings, uh, depending on how the players feel about it. <clears throat> So it's a d6 table, and when you crit fail, you roll a d6. On a 1, you accidentally hurt yourself for half damage. On a roll of 2, you accidentally hurt one of your companions for half damage. 3, you fall down and whatever you were holding is knocked out of your hand. 4, you're off your game and you get disadvantage on the next roll. 5, your opponent gets an immediate attack of opportunity. Or 6, any non-magical weapon or item you were holding breaks. So yeah, that might be kind of harsh, but I like it. Because... One thing that we all kind of fall into the trap of, or at least I fall into the trap of, in roleplay, it's easy to do a punishment for critical fail. Basically, whatever you're trying to do to that person, they immediately become hostile. It doesn't work, 
and they know you're trying to pull one over on them, or you're you're fooled by someone's lie, you buy it hook, line, and sinker, it's easy to have consequences for a critical fail in roleplay. In combat, though, it's a little bit more difficult, because you don't want to be like, oh, you hurt yourself. You, you, It's almost like, you know, I don't want to make this harder for you just because you had a bad roll. But there should be a penalty for not just missing, but critically missing. And so I like this table, and I feel like it's not all that punishing. Or it's not all that, like, super punishing. So, <clears throat> I think I'm going to bring this into my games. In fact, I'm, I'm going to talk this over with my Dark Sun players. Um, and, and maybe even my Saturday players, just to see if, if they'd be down for this. Because, I mean, people have magic weapons in, in both. Uh, so... You know, if, if they roll a six and they have a magic sword, it's not going to break or anything like that. But yeah, that's that's something I could definitely bring in. And from there, we get into the first adventure, which is uh, Beneath Kradumek. <clears throat> and so this kind of goes into the dungeon that's underneath the city of Kradumek. And basically, there was an event that happened that has caused kind of the, uh, the hold on people's minds that the demon worm has to stop. And now the players are no longer under the spell, and they're able to head down into the subterranean tunnel where there are these uh, these purple crystals that deaden the psionic abilities of the, the demon worm. And they're basically able to, like, take revenge on the priesthood of the, the purple demon worm. And so, kind of down in in this thing, they're able to find, you know, these, these weird creatures and, you know, like, concubines of the, uh, of the priesthood. And then there's also these weird humanoids called creepers that have basically, like, mutated into spider types. And there's, like, a wizard cat. Or not a wizard. There's a, uh, like, serpentine demon cat, which is interesting and cool. There's an art piece here that's kind of more in line with what I was thinking as far as uh, the look of this world. And it's these three... It's these three kind of Mad Max-looking women. Uh, one's got a shotgun, one has a spear, one has a sword and shield. And they've got, like, bits of armor and leather and stuff. And it's it's kind of more in line with what I was thinking as far as this uh, the, the look of this world. And it's not someone in jeans and a leather jacket. So that's... Again, there, there's a weird clash of styles with some of this art. But, again, that's a minor nitpick. That's that's just a preference thing, and maybe maybe other people won't see that as a clash of styles. But yeah, that's that's something that I kind of picked up on. And there's a map of the dungeon with all the areas numbered and stuff like that. And when you buy this package, you get the book and then separate map uh, images as well for each of the dungeons. And then the next dungeon that you can go into is actually inside the frozen demon worm, because like I said, there was an event that basically froze the demon worm and it no longer has psionic control, and you can go inside and see all the stuff that's inside, because this demon worm has basically been swallowing people and magic items for a long, long time. And so now you can go inside, and people that are in there can escape and stuff like that. And so you, you go inside this demon worm, which I think is a cool idea for a dungeon. Go inside like a giant monster. This, in my opinion, is like the highlight of the book, being able to go inside this giant monster. That's cool. That's a cool idea for a dungeon. I might steal that. I might steal that from my Dark Sun game. Uh, but here, there, there's some other weird stuff in here. Like, there, there's more. Zardoz is in this dungeon. And again, there's, there's Lovecraftian apostrophes to make sure that you're not stealing. Uh, but yeah, there's there's lots of cool stuff that you find in there. There's You see his spleen 
you see the worm's spleen. And then in here, uh, we're, we're introduced to another new type of artwork that actually kind of shows up a lot throughout the rest of the book. And this I'm more okay with than the stock photo. The stock photo should not be there. But this is, it's another photograph, uh, but it's of a model and a costume. And that kind of stuff is cool. Like, if you want to do that for your RPG book, that's cool. If you want to build your book around that, I, I can get down with that. There's There are books that have done that before. But again, if you want to do that, do that for the whole book. I don't like drawing, photo, drawing, 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 photo. I feel like your, your book needs to have a unified look to it. You know, I can't really complain about the the photos because they're they're good photos the models all look cool the costumes are awesome but it's uh again it's it's jarring from a uh from an art direction perspective and in here uh you run into like one of the priestesses from that uh that matriarchy world that's kind of interesting she she's an interesting character and i'm not really sure what uh again just going back to that i don't know that i would have done that that's a weird thing to throw in there some people might take it the wrong way it's it's all in good fun Nothing in this book seems mean-spirited. It all seems to be in a spirit of good fun. But some people might take it the wrong way. And so, personally, I don't know that I'd throw something like that in the book. Just because, you know, you might be limiting your, your audience. But again, you know, I didn't make the book. Finger did. People backed it. People have bought it. Maybe it doesn't bother people. I don't know. <clears throat> personally, I feel a little bit weird about it. I like to keep stuff like that kind of out of my game. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. And so, yeah, um... From there, it's it's really cool. I don't want to get too much into specifics for these dungeons because I don't want to spoil them. If this sounds like fun. I don't want to tell you like what's at the end of them. But yeah, this I really like the idea of a uh, you know a giant monster or the corpse of a giant monster kind of being in uh, you know being a dungeon that you go through. And there's all kind of cool stuff around that. Like if the monster starts to wake up, stomach acid kind of like starts flowing through it. At that point, you have to like avoid the stomach acid. So yeah, that's the Violet Demon Worm, and then from there, uh, we get to the Gamma Incel Cantina, which has a big table of different patrons that are there, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And the big thing that you get from the Gamma Incel Cantina is a hook to get your players to go to the Black Pyramid, which is like the main event of this book. It's all, it's all kind of about the Black Pyramid, and there's another picture here of the NPC that's asking you to go. Uh, again, it's, it's a... It's a photo with a model. It's done pretty it's done pretty well. If if Wenger had done the whole book like that, I wouldn't be complaining. It's you guys have already heard my thoughts on that. But yeah, the, the picture of the model is pretty cool. And from here, there's uh he has a table here for generating random uh NPC or PC ability scores if you don't want to do point buy or anything like that. It's pretty cool. He almost kind of sets this up like this would be a book that you could run by itself. Uh but there's no like gear stats or anything like that. So, uh, you might have difficulty with that if you just bought this book and wanted to run it kind of as, as its own system, but it's, it's interesting that he put this in here and you know, this, this would be really cool. Like I might use this to create an NPC on the fly. And from there you got more cool art. Uh, there's a really cool drawing of like the inside of the demon worm. Its mouth is open and there's like rows of teeth. That's, that's really awesome. I love that. And then the, the end of this book is the Black Pyramid. And the Black Pyramid is... The best way to put it is the Black Pyramid is just unadulterated weirdness. It's over a hundred rooms of just random stuff. Because the idea of the Black Pyramid is like, 
lots of different things from different universes are drawn here. The idea is that you like go in and out of the Black Pyramid. You actually can't rest inside the Black Pyramid. So you have to kind of go in and out and there's there's different ways that you have to like, uh, there's different ways that you have to navigate it. Like you have to get crystals, kind of like an old school first person shooter. You have to get keys to get into different parts. But yeah, this, this is the main event. And yeah, it's a mega dungeon. And there's all kinds of tables here for like different people that you could find in there and different new gods. Uh, there's more photos. And again, these these photos are actually really cool. I, I do want to stress that, you know, these are not bad images. They're cool. And if the book had been built on that, it, they'd be just really awesome. But yeah, this this whole thing is just it's it's weirdness. And there's this is the section where you actually get stats for what Zoth is and what it can do for your party. So you can use it to, like, oil your swords and stuff, um, but using it too much has a cost. Uh, you can also use it like acid, or you can throw it for 1d6 damage, or if you have, like, a whole potion bottle of it, it can do 3d6 damage. And then there's all kinds of tables for, like, weird loot that you can get inside, and what things cost. And then there's a map of the different areas. And then from here, it's, it's a long list of different things that, could, that you can find in here. One of the things that you can find is uh, straight up Pee Wee Herman, which again, uh, you know, Pee Wee Herman here is named uh, like Paul Rubens, essentially with a with an apostrophe. And there's the whole like secret word and he has like a killer, oh, Ruban, that's his name, Ruban is, is Pee Wee Herman. And uh, there's an execution droid with him and if you accidentally say the secret word, which is decided by a table, he'll try to kill you. Here's a tiki bar that has Rod Zerling in it. Again, not the way I would go in naming stuff, but, you know, with this being kind of an interdimensional portal, it makes a little bit more sense here. But yeah, that's that's the whole thing. I'm not going to go through all 100 rooms because one, spoilers, and two, that's a lot. But there's stuff like anthropomorphic fruit. And yeah, that's really, um, that's really chalt. Uh, so my final verdict, um, putting aside my design gripes with it a little bit, Oh, and uh, just, like, from a layout standpoint, everything's good. It's easy to follow, that kind of stuff. Uh, so putting aside my minor nitpicks with it, uh, do I recommend this uh, setting to you? And it's a similar situation to Howling Crater. Yes, but. Yes, but uh, you need to be prepared for unadulterated weirdness. Uh, your players need to kind of know the, the weirdness going into it. So if you think your group would like it, then, yeah, go for it. Um, should this be the first setting you run your game in? Absolutely not. Unless you really like space fantasy or Lovecraft or stuff like that. But for the most part, this is a really well done, well put together package. Um, if this is your cup of tea, absolutely go for it. Uh, you'll have a blast. Because there's lots of fun to be had here. And there's aspects of this book that I want to kind of move into my campaign. And, you know, would I run a version of this? Potentially, depending on the group, depending on how I was feeling. Uh, it's, it's a great book for one-shots. Uh, I feel like that's kind of the, the best use for this book. I have not read over the new adventure that Wenger's doing, but, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to see kind of what, what multiple sessions of this would look like. Uh, so my final verdict for this is, uh, yeah. If, if that's what you're into, then yeah, go for it. It's a well-put-together package for, you know, doing this kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, if, if any of this sounds cool to you, any aspect of this, yeah, run it, run it for your players. It'd be a lot of fun, but just be prepared for weirdness and 
yeah, that's that's really be ready to go into this and prepare your players for a lot of weirdness. Don't tell them what's coming, but tell them it's going to be strange. And if you have players who like stuff like this will break their immersion, then yeah, don't run it. But for the most part, yes, I, I can absolutely give this a recommendation. If it's your cup of tea, go for it. So guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for, for listening to my recommendation. Uh, next week, I'm hoping to have another guest on. I'm actually hoping it's going to be Dustin from uh, the Wisdom Check uh, tabletop to keyboard. Um, if it's not, then I will do some kind of other episode. But yeah, that's that's who I've got on tap. Uh, I'm looking at a, a few other guests today. Um, and I do want to say real quick, because uh, I want you guys to kind of keep this this friend of mine in your, your thoughts and, and prayers. My episode with Muhammad, my old DM, is going to be delayed for a little bit because Muhammad's kind of dealing with uh, with health stuff right now. Uh, it's nothing life-threatening, but he's he's got kind of some health stuff going on, so everyone, uh, you know, keep him in your, your thoughts and prayers. It'll be a little bit before I can bring him on, but hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be able to bring him on at some point and talk about my early days of gaming and close the loop on all those old stories, because he was there for all of them. So yeah, that's going to do it for today's episode. As always, tell your friends that Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard is a great podcast and that I am awesome. And uh, yeah, I will see you next time. So until then, best of luck in all your games and Dungeon Masters. Best of luck in your preparation. Tell all your friends and I'll see you next time.